This was was one of those things where we're just trying to figure out all of the threats to say if we can relieve the pressure on the, the species in any way. When you get to that point where you can see you know, the, the, the loss of species completely from the planet, the next question is what, what can we do? That's Brian Olson, a bird biologist and associate provost at the University of Maine, talking about two species of birds that inhabit salt marshes in Maine and along the eastern seaboard. Among the threats these birds and their habitats are facing, mercury exposure. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. At first glance, the salt marsh sparrow and Acadian Nelson sparrow don't really draw that much attention in Maine salt marshes. They're certainly not big and showy like a great blue heron or an egret. They're small and secretive and hard to spot. These diminutive birds are facing some big problems, however. Mercury exposure has led to a 10% decrease in nest survival. These two populations are in decline already due to a much bigger problem, sea level rise, which can flood their nests in the grasses of these marshes. Kate Ruskin, a lecturer in ecology and environmental science at UMaine, led this study that looked at the effects of mercury, climate change, and other factors. These and other issues have been the subject of a growing body of research led by UMaine, involving several universities and government agencies such as U.S. Fish and Wildlife. The future for these songbirds, who live in a very selective and vulnerable place, doesn't look bright. Poisonous chemicals and sea level rise fueled by climate change are global problems and the plight of these birds may seem insignificant. But there are things that can be done to help them. Allowing marshes to adapt to rising sea levels naturally. Changing where and how roads and bridges are built, just to name a few mitigating factors. And of course, the benefits that salt marsh and Acadian Nelson sparrows experience will be felt by other species, including humans. Brian Olson and Kate Ruskin talked to us about their study, the challenge of doing this field work with birds that are great at hiding in marsh grasses, the opportunities for students to get involved in this kind of research, and what the future might hold for these two tiny songbirds. Well, thank you so much for joining us as the semester ends here. Tell us about these birds. How and where do they live? Are they migratory? Why did you pick these two particular species to focus your research on? Brian, do you want to start maybe? Sure. These two birds are, are interesting in a lot of different ways. One of the, the reasons that I got into studying them initially is that uh, my research program has been focused throughout my entire career on adaptation to changing conditions. And so um, both of these species have uh, adapted to some pretty impressive conditions for a terrestrial bird. They're living in, a, in an environment that's incredibly wet and they're acting like <laughs> egrets or herons at points and they're acting like little, little song sparrows at, at different points and um, they've pulled off lots of different uh, adaptations because of that. And then the other part that's really interesting is that their populations are separated from each other a lot all across the, the coast because they exist in this marsh here and then there's a stretch of coastline with no marsh and then another little marsh and then a stretch of coastline with no marsh. So they, they live in these little bubbles of habitat and that allows um, for evolution to happen slightly differently here versus there versus the, the, the further down the coastline. So those two things are, are really interesting from the perspective of somebody who's, who's curious about evolution and curious about how critters get better adapted to, to the environment around them as they change. Catherine, where do you find them? Are, do they stay tight or do they migrate? What are their lives like? 
Well, they're these little brown birds that run much more than they fly. Um, so they're kind of like mice out in the salt marshes, which are these grasslands at the edge of the ocean. And that's because there aren't any trees in the marsh. There are no shrubs for the most part. So it's just a lot of grasses and they run around among the grasses. They do migrate. They spend their winters down in the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, um, and they breed up here in the Northeast. The salt marsh sparrows are only found in the summer breeding season between Maine and Virginia. Um, so their whole population um, worldwide is reliant upon what we do with our marshes here in the Northeast US. And they're actually one of the very few migratory species that are found within the United States the entire year. So most of our migratory species are either someplace not in the U.S. during the summer or someplace not in the U.S. during the winter, at least some par portion of their population. But all of the salt marsh sparrows are here, which kind of gives an, an interesting um, conservation twist, which is to say we can't rely on anyone else to help us with, with a conservation problem with salt marsh sparrows. It's our responsibility alone. What is the big picture question that you were both posing in, in terms of this research? For this project, we wanted to look at whether these two species, salt marsh sparrows and Acadian Nelson sparrows, so the Nelson sparrows that nest here in the northeast along the coast, are experiencing negative, well, basically, what mercury exposure are they experiencing between Maine and New Jersey? And is there any link between the mercury they're experiencing and their reproductive success, which we measured by um, seeing whether their nests survived or not? And Brian, there's been past studies looking at these birds in terms of uh, climate change, sea level rise, other things. How did that fold into this present research? This was was one of those things where we're just trying to figure out all of the threats to say if we can relieve the pressure on the, the species in any way. And, um, you know, there's a lot of the, the modeling that we've done trying to predict how their populations have, are doing um, aren't, aren't very rosy. And so, you know, we have predicted extinction within the next few decades for, for salt marsh sparrows and extirpation for Acadian Nelson sparrows as well. And so when you get to that point where you can see, you know, the, the, the loss of, of species completely from the planet, the next question is what, what can we do? And we want to have all the tools on the table. And so one of the things to do is not to just identify the the largest factor that's threatening them, which in this case is 100% sea level rise and um, uh, modifications we've made to marshes that prevent marshes from responding dynamically to sea level rise. But to say, okay, well, in situations where that's not the case, is there anything else that we can do to help out as well? Um, and so we have a series of different uh, studies that going on to address different mi more minor causes, and this is, and this is one of those. Kate, what was the headline from this study? How much of an effect is mercury having on these birds? So first we found that they are experiencing mercury exposure um, across this range, Maine to Virginia, and it's pretty heterogeneous or variable. Even birds that are breeding or building their nests in the same marsh, but as little as four kilometers apart can have very different mercury exposures up to eight times uh, greater in one bird versus another. So that was interesting. And then when we looked at the relationship between mercury that a female was exposed to and the likelihood of whether her nest would survive or not, we found that yes, there is a relationship, a negative relationship between a female's mercury exposure and the likelihood of her nest surviving. However, this effect pales in comparison 
to that of water level um, and therefore sea level rise is by far the greatest threat to this species despite the fact that yes we found a relationship between mercury and nest survival. Now Brian these are both sparrows but in a sense are they canaries as well? Do they tell us what is happening to other species that share this habitat and, and what might be happening to us? That's one of the, the, the take-homes from the variability from marsh to marsh and from area of marsh to area of marsh um, is that uh, that is happening because the amount of, of mercury is variable across those, those different marshes as well. So, so by looking at the birds, we can see that some marshes have more mercury in it than others. And, uh, and then it happens over a very small scale. So that means that they, the, either the, the mercury that is going into the system is different or the way that that system is responding to the mercury to make it more available to, to species is different as we go from one marsh to another. And that's the same for everything that's in the food web, for, from the, the insects, the spiders, the, the birds, the fish that are growing up there that are going out into the estuary. So we, we are basically at this point using birds to tell us how degraded and how mercury prone is this system? And the answer is some systems are, 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 are more degraded than others. And a silver lining there is that it points to the fact that taking conservation action on a small spatial scale can have big impacts and positive impacts for these birds. Um, so because we're seeing such high levels of variation from one marsh to another, and we see similar patterns when we look at their nest survival in response to water level, but it means we can take a small patch of habitat, improve it, and it can have a big effect on that population. Okay, take us into the field. How do you do this work? Well, it's a ton of fun. So first of all, you spend a lot of time mucking through marshes, um, which many people avoid because they are smelly and buggy and you're likely going to get your feet wet when the water tops over your boots. Um, but you muck around and search for nests. These species are both very secretive about their nests. The females will you know, just run around in the marsh grasses, try to avoid being seen. Um, so you work very hard to find their nests and then you recheck them every three days to determine whether a nest succeeded or failed. And if it failed, why? Was it flooding or did a predator get to the nest? Um, and we catch the females um, with mist nets, these very fine mesh nets. We collect a teeny tiny amount of blood and then used a machine to calculate how much mercury was in that blood. And then we were able to, again, characterize what's the mercury exposure that these birds are facing across their range? And is there any relationship with the nest survival for the females? Now, Brian, you're wearing a tie and you do a lot of administrative stuff these days, but uh, how about uh, being in the field for you? Is that uh, something you, you look forward to and enjoy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's something about peeking into the private lives of, of animals and, and getting into their space and trying to, to see how they live that, that is both incredibly interesting, but also it's, it can be, it's, it's a real peaceful experience that, that can, you know, fill your soul in, in, in certain ways. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something to, I, I encourage other folks to do when they can, just to try to get into the, the live life of some other species and, and see how they pull it off. And I would That's say that right. these particular species have, <laughs> are really interesting to get into. They, they're, they are unique among songbirds in a lot of different ways. Like we have this 
bizarro songbird hanging out on our Atlantic coast that's unlike any other little brown bird that you'd see anywhere across North America where they don't hold territories they're constantly crossing over each other's area they um they're the males and females don't really have pair bonds they don't form up couples like a lot of other most other songbirds do the females do all of the work with the young which is completely different from from almost every other songbird they they've actually on they're on record as one of the most uh, uh promiscuous birds on the planet where if you look at any given nest uh that usually has say between three and five eggs there's a pretty good chance that every single egg has a different father and then that the the mother takes care of everything after that so when you go to these marshes if you're there at the right time of the tidal cycle and the right time of the year they can be incredibly active with birds flying all over the place, tumbling around with each other, chasing each other. And it's, 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 a, it's an area of, of, that's full of behavior in a way that you might not see in a, in a regular field somewhere else where the songbirds are, they have their perch, they sing, they go down to their little nest that's in the same area, they have their, their home, someone else has their home, but it's kind of a total free-for-all in the tidal marsh. As the tides come in and suddenly there's no land and the tides go out and then there's land again and they their whole perspective on what is space and what is their space and how they interact with other individuals within their marsh is just fundamentally different from from a lot of other uh, other species and I feel it's been a real privilege for me to be able to to get in there and experience this kind of alternate reality on what how you can pull off a living Kate are these birds so specialized in the way they live that they're going to have a hard time adjusting to the scale and the pace of changes happening in their world? Yes, unfortunately, work by the group that Brian and I are both part of, the Salt Marsh Habitat and Avian Research Program, has investigated how these the salt marsh bear in particular is doing in terms of their populations, changes over time. And what we found is that they are likely to be extinct by 2060, driven largely by sea level rise. And that's because they live in the tidal marsh, which is mostly just grasses. And that means they build their nests just a few inches above the ground. And the tidal marsh floods around here in Maine about once a month. So these birds are incredible in that they've managed to adapt so that they can complete their breeding cycle between the monthly high tide events. So in less than 28 days, they can go from no nest to a female building a nest, soliciting copulation from all the males that are flying around, uh, laying the eggs, incubating the eggs, feeding the chicks, and chicks being ready to leave the nest again in less than a month. Um, but as sea level is rising, it's taking that window when the high marsh is not flooded and making it shorter and shorter. And so they're having trouble keeping up as a result. And again, there's not really shrubs or trees in the tidal marsh, so they don't really have anywhere to go within the tidal marsh uh, that is immune to flooding or will give them the window that they need. And that's what we're seeing is driving their population decline. Brian, it's, it's really a, a sad story in a way. I mean, you think, oh, these are just two little birds, but they're struggling. And to, to see them feel the effects of all these things going on around them, it, it, it has to be disturbing somewhat. It is, and, and, and I, they, it's important, too, to, to realize where we can make an impact and also where um, we should take responsibility, too. And so it's easy to say, oh, sea level rise, okay, well, that, you know, is human-driven climate change, but that's not anything related to us here in Maine or us here at a certain marsh in New Jersey or something like that. And there's nothing we can do about this massive global force that's that's pushing up on our shorelines. But at the same time, 
there are marshes around the world that are keeping up with sea level rise. That as sea level rises, the, the tides still bring in sediments that build the surface of the marsh up at the same speed that sea level is rising. And there are marshes that are doing okay. And we actually have examples of that in, in New England. And um, uh, so there's, there's some tidal marshes on islands off of Cape Cod and are keeping track with sea level rise. They're rising as fast and the sparrows are doing quite well there. The sparrows there are, are, are their populations are stable. Um, and that's partially because they're on these, these barrier islands that have no roads. They have, you know, maybe a, a tiny little house and, and, or no houses at all. And there's plenty of, of sediment that the tides can bring in and help the sea level to rise. Whereas the, the, the case across most New England marshes in particular is if you go to any marsh that's down on the coast, you'll see that there are roads that cross it, train tracks that cross it. Um, there are, you know, bridges of various shapes and sizes. And, and what these actually end up doing, not only allowing us to pass over this, this, this area, but it holds back the tidal water and it holds back the sediment that comes down rivers and it holds back the sediment that comes up from the estuary with the tides. And so we're doing two things, which is we're, our actions as, as a species have increased sea level rise, but at the same time, our actions locally have prevented the, the building materials the marsh needs to keep up with that first thing. So it's a combination of those, those, two, those two factors. And so there are things that we can do, especially in New England, to help this, these, these species from, from blinking off the planet. And um, it will take a lot of work, but you know, if we can figure out the bridge and road crossing question, which are structures that need to be replaced periodically anyway, if we can have those conversations and decide that it's important enough for us to, to allow the, the sediment to, to get back in the marshes, then, then we, can, we can really make a, a change in how likely it is that this species will be around. Now, this question could be for, for both of you or either of you. Tell us about the program this is part of at UMaine. What, what are the kinds of research is done? Are students involved? What are some of the big questions that this project sort of folds into? So this project is a small part of a larger research effort, again, called the Salt Marsh Habitat and Avian Research Program. That's a research collaborative that spans more than a handful of academic institutions, many government organizations like Fish and Wildlife Service, states, departments of inland fisheries and wildlife, for example. And all of us on this project, SHARP for short, are looking at tidal marsh birds and trying to figure out how are their populations doing, if they're not doing well, why? And then what can we do? So as marshes are restored, we're monitoring them before and after restoration action to figure out, is it helping the birds? Is it resulting in population growth for the birds? Um, many, many students are involved. I was a graduate student on this project. I started the sampling work in 2011 in my first year of my PhD here at the University of Maine. And gosh, we've had one dozen, two dozen graduate students graduate as part of this project. Hordes of undergrads every year, dozens. This is a big project where we've got boots on the ground from Maine to Virginia. And so much of that work is driven by graduate students, you know, dictating the research questions, leading the field crews, and then undergraduate students, especially at the University of Maine. Just as an offhand guess, I would say we've probably employed 20 to 30 UMaine under, no, probably more than that undergrads 
Yeah, way more than that, especially if you count data entry during the school year, honors, theses, is truly staggering how much student involvement has driven this project and made it successful. Um, and in terms of the other things that we're doing, all sorts. So where are the birds? How are their populations doing over first 10 years? And now we're looking at 20 years uh, because we have a good data set from around the year 2000. Demographic monitoring, monitoring where we're finding nests, tracking them over time, over multiple years, the same individuals. Uh, we are looking at restoration actions. We're even trying things like building islands of marsh that will float. That's largely led by Brie Benvenuti, a former grad student on the project who now works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here in Maine. Um, so we're soliciting any and all harebrained ideas for how to help these birds so we can test it and hand managers concrete plans about how to help these birds. This issue obviously is, is a bit troubling, but what's it like to see these undergraduate students, may, many, maybe this is the first time they've done work like this, to see that light turned on for them. Is that a nice side benefit to what is a difficult issue? Oh, for sure. It's it's so great to work with, with students and to, to allow folks to, to really experience science on the ground for the first time. And this project is interesting because it has this strongly applied realm. So, so students that are really committed to conservation and to preserving the diversity of life on the planet get get very excited about about being able to get in there and, and make a difference and um and then but we also have a lot of basic science research going on as well that just to understand how species evolve we've got folks working in the lab on genomic questions and looking at how species respond to increases in salinity in their in their body and to increases in temperature. We have a, a, a undergraduate who's working on an independent project right now, Cassie Ferry, who um, is working down in New Jersey and um, running around and recording songs of seaside sparrows and, and looking at how uh, warmer temperatures during the day as as the climate changes is impacting how well they can defend their territories and sing and how well they can pull their their songs off especially on the really hot days and so this is a a i mean she she gets to do that secret lives of sparrow gig and and see you know the, the individual males how, where they where they live and how their songs work and you know who their neighbors are and who they fight with and who, who they're friends with and all of that but at the same time the research is really going to give us an eye into how species in general respond to increases in temperatures so um, uh, I think that that's been an eye-opening experience for them for her and and also it's it's been great for the, the ideas that she's brought to the team that has changed probably what the next student project might end up being. Now, Brian, we teased you about uh, wearing a tie, but of course you have a, a little bit of a different role now. You're involved in the provost's office and academics writ large here at UMaine. Uh, has this given you any insight into how uh, this kind of research fits into the larger picture? UMaine is known as a major public research university. This is just one small example of, of how that plays out. Absolutely. I mean, one of the major parts of my job right now is to make sure that we're making all of the connections that we can between the research that the University of Maine does and our undergraduate education mission. And we we have this uh, ability to not only have our research serve the planet and serve the people of the state of Maine, but also at the same time allow our students to be part of that, to help make that change, but also to learn how to be a professional in their field by being involved in authentic 
activities that are are done for for folks outside the university. Speaking of you know undergraduates like Cassie and the like, we wanted to to give as many if not all of our students at UMaine the the option of not only just taking coursework and being trained to do a thing after they leave, but to start doing that thing, to start doing that professional practice as early as they can in their career. We have uh, you know been launching. Uh, what we're calling research learning experiences that um, start in the very first year of a student's uh, time at UMaine so that they can jump right into to real authentic scholarly enterprise so that they can get better at it too so that they can you know we don't just find these these students that are doing great work that that jump in their senior year but if they start in their first year they can get better at at becoming researchers so that they can give back more to the the state and to the people that the research serves and so that when they graduate and leave they have a a deeper richer history of training behind them from my own perspective the research that that i do informs how i interpret the material in the classes when i teach it and it gives me a different context and i I hope that that's the same for for the students involved too which is to say you know when a when a student spends their summer out in the marsh and and learns you know the secret lives of sparrows when they come back and take an animal behavior course in fall they have a completely different lens to 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 interpret that that theory um and it means something to them and it, and they can also say oh does this does this mean that you you said this was an idea how do I connect it to the sparrows that I saw this summer and and now there are participation there 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 is a participatory process within their learning rather than just passively being told what they should you know learn in order to do well on the test so i think that research and being involved in research makes it clearer why we learn what we learn it makes it clearer why we would want to get better at it and what that would accomplish and i don't think that we can start that too early and and that's something that's a little bit unique about about the University of Maine is saying this is not an experience that we're trying to you can prove yourself worthy after washing dishes for <laughs> for 2 to 3 years before you can jump into a to a research enterprise but instead we're saying no this is an important part of your educational process and we want you to start the first semester that you're here they have hands-on experience and and job skills too that's huge i I started doing field research and learned how to band a bird between my junior and senior year of college only because all students in my department got a grant to do a research project. I didn't know that research was a way to make a living, that field ecology was a way to make a living before that. And I think it's really wonderful at the University of Maine where we have a land grant mission as well as sea grant, space grant, and so many research projects active here in Maine. And now a lot of support from the university at large to bring even more of those experiences to undergrads. So it's not just the top performing students who, or the ones who've paid their dues over many years who get to hold a bird or learn how to measure the diameter of a tree, but they get to use those tools in their first and second years and it's everybody. Um, So I think that's a, a wonderful thing. Again, I... I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that research experience, and I had no idea it was out there. So I'm really excited to see more humane undergrads. When I was a PhD student, all but one of my technicians had never touched a bird before they worked with me. And it was so special to get to give students that experience where they learn to handle them and band them and measure them and catch a wild bird for the first time in their lives. This is a profession for both of you, but do you both consider yourselves birders? And how would somebody that is a birder or just interested in wildlife, how can they see these these uh, creatures? 
I would consider myself a birder, and uh, <laughs> I'll let Kate speak for herself. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it is interesting because not not all ornithologists are birders, and not all birders are ornithologists for sure. But um, yeah, I I, I I I am a bird nerd. I will admit it in public. If you want to see these, uh, well, they're, because they're migratory. It has to be in the summer, um, and uh, and then you need to to find a, a tidal marsh, and you need to have patience. And it's helpful if you can know what their songs are, because you can you might be able to hear them even if you can't see them. Um, they are like Kate had mentioned, very secretive. They may be singing from underneath the grass even, and and you you can't really see them from from the the edge of the marsh. The upside to those road crossings is it does give us access if you don't want to, to, to get your feet wet. And so, you know, walking uh, road edges that, that cross marshes and with, a, with an ear open and an eye open for movement um, will really help. There's not a lot of songbirds that are out in the middle of marshes. And so if you are out in the middle of a tidal marsh and uh, you see a small songbird flying around, especially songbirds that are chasing each other, um, there's a pretty good chance that, that you're looking at, at either um, a saltmarsh sparrow or a Nelson sparrow. The Nelson sparrows also do dramatic flight displays. They, they, they fly up real high in, in the air while they're singing. Um, uh, and uh, that, when that happens, which is a lot more in, in around the June timeframe, earlier on in the, in the breeding season, um, that makes it easier for them to see as well. Plus, it's just an interesting behavior to be able to witness. How about you, Kate? Your best bet will be to go to Eastern Trail in Scarborough Marsh in southern Maine. And it's an old rail trail that goes right through the marsh. And one of our study plots where we collected samples for this study and all of our research uh, is just 50, 100 meters off the trail there. So I can confidently tell you there are birds there, salt marsh and Acadian Nelson sparrows. But they are hard to see and they are hard to hear. The songs for salt, I mean, both of them are described as these whisper songs. I've heard the salt marsh sparrow described as if you take droplets of water and throw it on a hot frying pan. So I encourage you to look up the song before you go. Uh, bring binoculars or a scope. Um, and there is a main Audubon Society uh, facility right there so that you can ask for help and they, uh, they organize bird walks as well. And then you can definitely see one um, between June and August, um, June and July being the best times here in Maine. Well, fascinating work and we thank you so much for uh, talking to us about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this final episode of Season 5 of The Main Question. We're already hard at work on some great episodes for Season 6, which will begin in later January 2022. You can find The Main Question on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon Music and Audible. We'd love to hear your questions or comments. Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.